Okay, we have our first question over here on Genesis 28. Yeah, uh, it goes to, uh, I would say, the predominant thought in, uh, in American Christianity today is that Abraham's family was pagan and didn't know the Lord and that Abraham was called out of that. Why, why is that the dominant thought? When we looked at today, it was, it was clear that Abraham's lineage was followers of, of, of God. He even said that, his, uh, that they were. So why, why is that? Why? why? Okay. okay, let's explain Abraham's past and his, his parentage and what was happening with them in, in faith. Okay, Genesis... I'm not Genesis. Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. The history of Abraham's faith. Okay? Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Joshua 24, 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. They served other gods. Who's included? Terah, Abraham, Nahor. They served other gods. Verse 14, 24, 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river, which means beyond the Euphrates River, and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They clearly, in Mesopotamia, in Ur of the Chaldeans, they initially did worship other gods. They were idolaters. However, Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Acts chapter 7, verse 1. I say however because there in that land of the Chaldeans, that's when they were converted. 7 verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Depart from your country and from your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. Remember we read Genesis 31:53, which mentions the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. So Nahor, Abraham, Terah, I believe they were first unbelievers, then became believers, or so they were unconverted, became converted, when they were in Ur of the Chaldeans, when the Lord appeared to Abraham, at that point. And so when they left Ur the Chaldeans, they left as believers, as converted men, settled in Haran, stayed there for a few years. Terah dies there. Nahor stays there. 
and Abraham leaves there when he's 75 years old and comes to the land of Canaan. That means that when they left Ur, they were believers. That's the faith of Abraham. And then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, believers when they are there in the land of Canaan. Okay, does that answer your question? Yeah, it, it does, but, but again, why would you... Again, I think most thought is when God called Abraham out of earth, he was a pagan. Oh. We can't say that he was a pagan when he left. Absolutely not. He was not a pagan. Because Stephen says, God appeared to him at that time, and he had faith at that time. That's why he left, right? Hebrews 11 also addresses that. Hebrews 11 addresses the time that he left. Hebrews 11, remember, he's not speaking of superficial fake faith in Hebrews 11. He's speaking of real faith, genuine faith, salvific faith in Hebrews 11. And verse 8, he says, By faith Abraham... When he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verse 8 again, by faith Abraham, when he was called... Well, that's the calling of Acts 7 that Stephen mentions. Mm -hmm. Acts 7, 1 to 4. When he was called, he obeyed by going out. So he had faith to obey that call, which means his faith must have preceded that time. Though the Bible doesn't explain the circumstances of Abraham's conversion, it does explain the time or or the, the place of it and the sequence of events. At what point in his life when he was a man of faith? Could it be that maybe the confusion may come from the fact that we think Genesis 15, when God credits righteousness to Abraham, that that's, we take that as the first moment that Abraham had faith. I think maybe that's where some of the confusion comes from because we tend to think that, um, that Abraham did not have faith before Genesis 15, but when Yes. In some cases, the confusion comes up because Genesis, at the end of Genesis 11 and into 12, 13, 14, we read of Abraham, his life and his departure from Ur and settlement in Canaan. But in 15, 6, it says, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. As though... That's when it started. Some misinterpret that. But that's not saying when it started. It's affirming the fact that that is true of him. Not when it started. And how can we say that? Or why would we say that? Well, based on what I just said about Hebrews 11, 8 to 10. Um, Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. But also, um, look, for example, at James chapter 2. James chapter 2.
James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, when he says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar, how would he be justified by works at that point? Didn't he do many good works before that point? Yes, many good works that manifest his faith. James is not saying that Abraham was saved by doing good deeds, doing good works. He's talking about the manifestation of true faith. He's talking about the evidence of true faith, the fruit of true faith. And so James takes the example of Isaac on the altar as the supreme example of Abraham's faith manifested in works, not as the first example, right? But the supreme example. In the same way, he then cites Genesis 15, 6 in verse 23. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But that's a quote from 15, 6. He offered up Isaac in chapter, in chapter 22. Correct? Therefore, this is an example that Genesis 15, 6 is not speaking of that moment in time was when he was saved. James doesn't take it that way. He doesn't take it that way for Abraham's true faith, and he doesn't take it that way for a true manifestation of Abraham's faith in works. It's just asserting the, the truthfulness of his faith. That's all that Genesis 15, 6 is meaning. Okay? To uh, follow up on what Matt had said, so that goes to show then um, either people aren't reading their Bibles or... Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> or even if they are, they're not reading it. That is the correct answer to my question. Yes. Sorry, Dr. Okay. They're, they're, not reading it, they're not reading it carefully. And even if they're reading Genesis... But then later they read Acts 7, and they're not seeing how Acts 7 should be informing their interpretation of Genesis. And then Genesis, or Joshua 24, like, so they're not putting those pieces. Yes, okay. Yes, to summarize your comment, they are not reading the Bible in the first place. Or if they are reading the Bible, they're not reading it carefully to put the pieces together as we just did. Um, speaking of putting, not putting the pieces together... One of the other things that people do is they impugn Abraham for staying in Haran until his father died. Right? You've heard that, right? He was supposed to go to the land of Canaan from Ur, from Ur to Haran to Canaan, but he stays in Haran a few years, and after his father died, only then did he go to Canaan. Have you heard interpreters blame Abraham for that? I have. And yet Stephen does not. Stephen says in verse 4, Acts 7, verse 4, Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran, and from there, after his father died, 
God removed him into this country. He says, God removed him into this country, into the land of Canaan. Which means, that implies, God was the one who told them to wait for some time in Haran and then go on to Canaan. He wasn't disobeying God by pausing on the way. Could we say that that goes back to when he was initially called out of the land of Ur, God said to go into a land that I will show you. God just hadn't shown him the next step at that moment. Is that a possibility? It, yes, because Hebrews 11.8 says that. <clears throat> Hebrews 11.8 does say he did not know where he was going. God told him to leave, but he did not know his destination until God told him his destination. Something that Jerry mentioned that I think goes back to a question I was thinking is earlier in the first session you mentioned how the interpreters take the blessing there as being primary, phys primarily physical and then you went through the passages to show us how the scripture informs us that this is a spiritual blessing. Is their interpretation because they just reject what they've seen in the scripture? Or is it because, as Jerry was pointing out, they're just not reading carefully? They're supposed to be the scholars interpreting and helping other people understand. Yet they're either rejecting what the Bible's saying and then falsely leading people to something that's not true, or they're just not careful. They're not, they don't have enough knowledge to put these passages together to come to a proper interpretation. Which which way do you think it primarily goes? Uh well, I think with the common person, common man, it's usually not enough information. If they are teachable and humble, willing to listen, then they can see, see oh, yes, that's what it does say. But when it's a scholar, a commentator, a pastor, a theologian, they have been in it for a while, and they have heard alternate interpretations, and by that point, they have chosen to reject it. They have chosen to reject the evidence in the Bible. And that's the problem that often happens. The longer you're in it, and the more you know there is a diversion viewpoint, what, what's the evidence for that? If you haven't considered it carefully, then willfully and deliberately, you are rejecting what you know is there. And that happens. And I would say the tendency is, the longer they've been preaching and teaching, um, formally, informally, in church, in seminary, then the greater the chance that they know that what they are saying is contrary to the Bible or potentially contrary to the Bible, yet they don't have enough of a conscience to say, listen, I can't do this anymore. I can't say this anymore. I need to repent. They don't want to repent. And they're the ones who will be held to a greater accountability. Greater accountability. Yes, that's right. Let many of you, my brethren, not become teachers, for as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. James 3.1. Next question. Um, in reference to 28 verse uh, 18 where he pours oil on top of the pillar. Um, so you mentioned you know, it being the picture of uh, Christ having the spirit without measure. And, but also like throughout the Old Testament and maybe the New, that pouring oil is a symbol of anointing, correct? Yes. And specifically maybe anointing with the Holy Spirit. In you know, Psalm 23 he says, you anoint my head with oil. Yes. So could this be maybe even the first reference, but it's a direct and even literal picture 
of Messiah because Messiah or Christ means anointed one. Anointed one. Yes. And so this is a direct and like maybe the literal picture of yes, yes, the Messiah. yes. It is a picture. So the anointing of the of the stone or the rock in twenty eight eighteen says he took the stone that he had put by his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. If the oil represents the Holy Spirit and the stone represents Christ and the Spirit is given to Christ without measure, he gives the Spirit without measure, John 3, 34, then if the Spirit is anointing Christ as prophet, priest, and king, would this be an example of Jesus being the Christ? Yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. And this is also why, remember in John chapter 4, the woman of Samaria, she says in John 4, 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Well, the word Christ does not occur in the law of Moses. Christ or Messiah, anointed one, does not occur in the law of Moses. It first occurs in 1 Samuel 2.10 and then 2.35, Daniel 9.25 and 26, in those places, Psalm 2.2. Later it does, but it does not here. Well, the Samaritans only believed in the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But she still was willing, it was common, and she's a Samaritan woman. She's not an educated man among the Samaritans. She's not a priest among the Samaritans. She's just a Samaritan woman of ill repute. Yet she knew that the Samaritans, based on Genesis to Deuteronomy, that they should be expecting the Christ. And what would be an evidence of that? Genesis 28, 18. Genesis 28:18 along with others like Genesis 49:10 Shiloh coming all of this pointing to the one which I mean in that passage Jesus says that you know you know that she says there we have to go to Jerusalem to worship he says there will be a time where you don't you're not going to go to a specific mountain to worship because yes that was a house of God that God built up for a purpose but this is the house. He says this is the house of God here. So Christ is the house of God. He's the one who's building up the true temple, obviously the earthly temple, which is His body, His people. Yes. So, so Christ is building the house of God, and and that would be His body. Correct. That's why Paul says that that the Spirit is doing so in um, Ephesians two, two twenty-two, two twenty-one and twenty-two. When he says that. And this would precede Moses, precede the tabernacle, precede Solomon's temple, that God has always desired to dwell among his people and his people to be attached to Christ, not restricted to a physical location. Yes? We've talked about in some of our um, conversations, I think not in the large group, but at lunch, about Jacob's uh, conversion when that took place. And it seems like this passage really confirms with several examples that he was a believer by this point because of the fact that they 
wanted him to marry a believer. And they were confident that he would find one in the family there. But then also the way he, all that happens here, God's revealing himself to him, what he does in response to these things, the fear of the Lord, those aren't indicative of unbelievers. And then his vow is a true vow. It's not a putting God to the test uh, where he's saying, you have to do this for me, and then if you do that, then I'll serve you. God wouldn't answer that kind of a prayer. No, it would be abhorrent to him. And God doesn't rebuke him for those things. So could you talk about then just uh, those issues related to when Jacob became a believer? Yes. There is a, a question. When did Jacob become a believer? Um, did he become a believer early in life, uh, in adulthood, uh, at some point during these chapters, or after he returned to the land of Canaan by the end of chapter 33. When did he become a believer? And some of this confusion arises because uh, people are prone to looking at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the early stages of these chapters as bumbling idiots. They don't know what they're doing. They lack faith. They're weak in faith. Things like that. That's the way they look at them when we need to have a better perspective of who they were. Uh, the Bible, the rest of the Bible considers them men of faith and the rest of the Bible does not highlight examples of their sinfulness uh, or examples of their disobedience, examples of their lack of faith the way we do. And we have to halt ourselves and say, why is it that the Bible doesn't do it, but everybody today is doing it? Everybody today is bashing Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in ways that the Bible does not do so. But why? And I think the reason is they have misunderstood the nature of true faith, the nature of temptations, the nature of the, the context of these passages. They're not reading their Bibles carefully, comparing one passage to another passage. So they come to these conclusions wrongfully. Also, they have an ill motive. Many of them have an ill motive that if the father of the faith... Abraham, and if Isaac and Jacob could mess up so much, so often throughout their whole life without any repentance, then I can live that way too. I want an easy and free Christianity. I want to be able to live in disobedience, live keeping my sins, and I don't need to repent. After all, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the way they lived. Look at the way Peter was. They also liked to bash Peter. So look at the way they were, and since in their view they can demote Abraham, then they could put Abraham on their level and live in sin. Even though Abraham would never do some of the things they do. That, that's what they want to do with Abraham. They want to demote him, not esteem him as, as high as he should be, so that he sets an example for us. They don't want Abraham's example. All right, so these are some of the reasons why there's confusion about their conversion, the time of their conversion. But in reference to the most likely explanation as to Jacob's conversion, let me propose that it happened when he was in the womb. When Jacob was in the womb. Why? Let's look at chapter 25. 
chapter 25. Twenty-five, twenty-one. Twenty-five, twenty-one. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. These statements, or this answer to Rebekah is given while the two sons are in the womb. But we have to ask, why were they struggling together within her? Why were they struggling? Was it merely, uh, hey brother, you, you put your foot in my face and I just need... I, I need to see, I need to breathe. Uh, what was going on? Or was it something more uh, significant and spiritual? Was it just that there wasn't enough room there? Or was it something spiritual? Well, I think it was something spiritual because the rest of chapter 25, um, in the rest of chapter 25, Jacob, he knows what he really wants, and he wants spiritual benefits. He wants spiritual benefits. That's why Jacob despised his birthright and sold it to Jacob, right? And the birthright had not to do mainly with physical, spiritual, uh, physical material blessings, but spiritual blessings. The seed of the woman from Genesis 3, the seed of Abraham, now here, the seed of Jacob, the offspring of Jacob. That's what he was concerned about. Then we see in chapter 27, at the risk of being found out, he wants this blessing, the patriarchal and prophetic blessing. He wants it at the risk of a curse on him. He really wants the spiritual blessing. Why would he want that? And then chapter 28, like we saw today, the way in which he listens to Jacob, uh, Jacob listens to Isaac. He goes to find a godly wife. Um, God appears to him in the dream, assures him of his presence. And his response to the vision or the dream. Um, and then the stone and the, the oil, the vow and the tithing. All of that indicative of his faith. So... If this is the case, then it would add a stronger weight to the argument of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 10 to 13. <coughs> is Paul's argument not, listen, God choosing individuals for salvation is illustrated in several ways, and one way, Romans 9, 10. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or evil, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. We read that in Genesis 25, 23. 
just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Isn't Paul saying that God chooses here to announce the salvation of Jacob and the rejection of Esau while they're in the womb to make it absolutely clear to us that it doesn't depend on them doing good deeds and that God waits to see good deeds before he pronounces that they are saved. Isn't that what his argument is? God doesn't wait. Well, how would he heighten his argument, put more weight on his argument, but to say that God actually did save Jacob in the womb before he had any possibility of doing anything outside the womb? And he made it clear to Isaac and Rebekah and to all of us. And the same with the rejection of Esau while in the womb. That would illustrate his point even more. Okay, and one more. You might ask, is it possible for God to save children in the womb? Is it possible? Well, we're dealing with God Almighty, correct? That's number one. Number two... Number two is John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, when Elizabeth was carrying John, look what it says in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Further, 139, Luke 139. Now at this time, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Which baby is that? John. That's John, John the Baptist. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how, is, how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. He leaped for joy, filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Leaping for joy happens how? Because God made him aware of Mary coming into the house, right? That's how it happened. And how can that happen unless God has quickened him, given him awareness, and given him faith in the womb? Would the same be true of Samson as well? Would the same be true of Samson? You're going to read a verse? You have a verse? In Judges 13, verse 4, uh, verse 3, So the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, nothing unclean. In um, verse 5. Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. The same could be true of Samson because of verse 5. Samson, this is Judges 13, 5. 
the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Well, to be a Nazarite, according to number six, the individual has to determine to do that. In this case, he's going to be that from the womb. Now, it could be that his parents are going to make him that or force him to be that way. But in number six, the individual volunteers to do so. So if the voluntary nature of it is a prerequisite, then it has to be from the womb, from Samson. We might also say that um, with Samuel, Samuel the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet. And then Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 1.5, yeah, that he set him apart from the womb. From the womb. He yes. didn't realize it until he was older, but he told him that. Knowing the womb is him. Don't say I'm only a youth when he's young there. God goes, well, you were a fetus when actually yeah. it happened. So. Yeah. And in the case of Samuel, it would be a, a verse like this. 1 Samuel 1.11. 1 Samuel 1.11. That says... Um, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head, which means from the womb. So she was also praying not only for a son to dedicate to the Lord, but a son who would be saved from the womb, dedicated to the Lord. And a razor not coming on his head would be similar to Samson, a Nazarite. Sam, uh, Samuel would be like Samson, a Nazarite from the womb. Yes? So, brother, doesn't that, doesn't that give us hope of elect infants? Does this not give us hope of elect infants? Yes, it does. Yeah. Can you read, uh, would you mind reading Jeremiah 31, uh, 15 through 17, in relation to that? Jeremiah 31, 15 to 17 in relation to this. A prophetic account of the slaughter of Herod on the toddlers under the age of two in Bethlehem. Yes. It's a very, very interesting uh, okay. prophecy here. That okay, Jeremiah prophesies that Herod's going to slaughter the infants. 31.15, Jeremiah 31.15, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they shall return from the land of the enemy. And there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall return to their own territory. Is it possible, is it reasonable to assume that this prophecy is speaking of those elect infants that were slaughtered that will someday uh, dwell on the new earth and return to that land as a result of this prophecy? Because of what it says, and your children shall return to their own territory? Yeah. Uh, they will come again from the land of the enemy. In other words, death. Um, after, after they're risen, great resurrection last day. Yes, because certainly it, it was not the case that they were dead and then 
they came alive during the time of right. Matthew chapter 2. So it would have to be yet future. And if it is future, then it would be a prophecy of that. Yes. So it, it's a reasonable... Uh, it's a reasonable conclusion. Yes. Reasonable. It's a tremendous uh, encouragement in relation to the vast number of babies that are slaughtered by way of abortion. Yeah. Tremendous encouragement. Yes. So elect infants. It doesn't mean all infants are going... All dead infants are going to heaven, but elect infants. Right. And... Um, a comparable scripture to this has to do with angels. There are elect angels. First Timothy, First Timothy chapter five. First Timothy chapter five, verse twenty-one. Five twenty-one. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. He calls them chosen angels or elect angels. If there are elect angels, then there are also reprobate angels, wicked angels or demons, fallen angels. Which I thought, which I've always thought that uh, those were the one third of all the hosts of heaven that were cast out and the ones that weren't were those elect angels that were spared from falling. Yes, so the ordination of the chosen ones and the reprobate ones has to be from God. Yes. The ultimate destiny. Doesn't that that apply clear back to before time? And uh, John 6, 39, that Jesus came to uh, save the elect and... Uh, he didn't lose any of them because they were chosen uh, by the Godhead uh, before time, and it's un- and it's unfolding in God's time as He saves each one and, re- and reveals that salvation yes. to each person. Okay. Then, if this doctrine of election is true of all humans, including infants and angels then would this not have to occur before the foundation of the world, before time and space, before history started? And the answer is yes. The evidence for that, evidence for that would be, for example, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Who has saved us, meaning God, who has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, his own purpose and grace. So his choice of us before the foundation of the world, but then the manifestation of Christ in the world accomplishes or sets the the basis for our redemption. And you also mentioned, okay, uh, I'll, I'll come to John 6. Another one is 1 Peter 1 Peter 1, 
1 Peter 1, 20. 1 Peter 1, 20. This is speaking of Christ. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Before the foundation of the world. It's not an afterthought, and it's not plan B. Um, after the fall of Adam and Eve, nor is it plan B after the Jews rejected Christ in his first coming. Some interpreters say God had plan B. He was taken by surprise that Adam and Eve sinned. And then others also say that it was plan B because Christ came for the Jews to set up his millennial kingdom, but he needed most, if not all the Jews, to receive him as their Christ to set up his kingdom, which would have been 2,000 years ago. But since they rejected him, then plan B was Jesus to go to the cross. Yes, dispensationalism teaches this, that plan B was for Jesus to go to the cross. But that's not the case at all. Okay, then to the verse that you mentioned in John 6. Let's read 635. 635 to 40. Uh, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. All right, verse 35, we must come to him, and coming to him is the same as believing in him, according to verse 35. And he tells his audience um, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. But wait a minute, this is the crowd of people, the 5,000 plus women and children, right? They are following him, and he's telling them you don't believe, but they're following him. So that means that they're not true believers. Then 37, he teaches them, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, which means all that the Father gives me shall believe in me, and the one who believes in me I will certainly not cast out. Then 38, why did he come into the world? To do the will of the Father, verse 38 says, right? And if it is to do the will of the Father, when was the will of the Father established? before the foundation of the world or from all eternity. And then verse 39, uh, and this is the will of him who sent me that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So the father gives all of the elect, not every person in the world, but all of the elect to the son. The son loses none of them. 
That means we retain our salvation forever. We don't, we don't lose it. Today we have it. Tomorrow we lose it. This moment we have it. The next moment we lose it. It cannot happen that way. It does not happen that way. But then He will raise us up on the last day. And then we must believe in Him and we will be raised up on that last day. Verse 40. And so what was accomplished in eternity past or the, the purpose of God, His grace, His will accomplished in eternity past uh, or determined in eternity past is accomplished and carried out in this world in the incarnation of Christ. 100%. 100%, yes. <laughs> he loses nothing. He oh, yeah. loses nothing. And that is, you know, right here in verses 35 to 40, we have the, all of the doctrines of grace mentioned here. Yeah. Or implied. Mentioned or implied here. And if not, look at verse 44. No one can come to me. No one can believe in me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. We might ask, how does the Father draw? Verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So we first hear and learn from the Father by the work of the Spirit and then we come to Christ or believe in Christ, which brings up the, another major issue. Does regeneration or rebirth produce faith or does faith produce a rebirth? What's the answer? Regeneration. Regeneration first, which means it has to be a miracle of God changing our heart, granting us faith, a desire to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, and a desire to repent of our sins. That's why Christ died on the cross. Correct? So that's the sequence. By God's purpose... His Spirit working in our dead heart, He quickens us or regenerates us, gives us a new heart, which is then able to come to Christ or believe in Christ and repent of sin. That's the, that's the way. Okay? So, the follow-up? So would it be incorrect to say that they're simultaneous? Or is it incorrect to say... Regeneration and conversion can be also said to be simultaneous. Simultaneous, no. Sequential, yes. Um, sure, yes. Not separated by days, seasons, months, and years. Okay? When we say it's not sim simultaneous, we're not also saying that you can be regenerated on the 1st of January and then put your faith in Christ on the 31st of the same year, of uh, December. It can't be like that either. But in terms of the sequence, it has to be regeneration producing faith. Why? Let's look at a couple of examples. Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. While you're finding Acts 16, um, what, is, what is our responsibility when we hear the gospel? There's a twin responsibility. Two things we're supposed to do. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. What did he say? Repent, Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15. So those are our dual responsibilities when we hear the gospel. Repent and believe or believe and repent. Correct? Well, how are we able to repent and believe? Acts 16. 
16.13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. There are women, at least two, correct, according to verse 13, One of them is saved. And how does that salvation take place? She has to hear the word of God. But verse 14, the Lord opened her heart, which means it was closed earlier. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. If Paul is explaining the gospel, they need, she, they all need to repent and believe it, right? So that's the proper response to it. And we know she did have that proper response because of verse 15. She was baptized. She looked at Paul and Luke and said, if you have judged me to be faithful, you see my response, right? You see my genuineness, that it's it's born of faith. And then she shows good deeds. Come into my house and stay. Come into my house and stay, she says. So now she's showing generosity. She's not being selfish but generous, right? So how did that happen first? What's the sequence? Open her heart or regeneration, and then she believed and repented, right? Okay, one more place. And somebody with the ESV, please read for me 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. What comes first? Our rebirth or our faith? According to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. And who has the ESV? Go ahead. Please read aloud. Very loudly. 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The first part of the verse, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, ESV says has been born of God. NASB says is born of God. Either way, what has to be first for someone to believe? You have to be born of God. He puts the two concepts, the issues that we're talking about right now, Together in one verse, one sentence, he says, if you believe that Jesus is a Christ, you are born of God. He doesn't say your believing makes you born of God. He's saying the evidence that you are born of God is that you believe. The evidence that you have been born of God is that you believe. Now, if this one verse doesn't say it clearly, well, it is mentioning rebirth and Faith in one verse. But the fact that John is constantly emphasizing rebirth produces certain things, such as faith, is evidenced in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 29. 2.29. 
If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Here, how can we know that someone is born of him? If they practice righteousness. Correct? He would not be saying, if you practice righteousness, it will make you born of him. No one's going to say that, right? You have to practice righteousness, and as a result of practicing righteousness, you'll be born of him. No. It has to be you're born of him, and the evidence of that is that you practice righteousness. Look also at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 9. 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Verse 9 again. No one who is born of God practices sin. Are we supposed to quit practicing sin to be born of God? Is that what he's teaching? No, he's saying that if we're born of God, then we'll quit practicing sin. Another chapter 4. 1 John 4. 1 John 4, 7. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. To answer the question, how are we to know someone is born of God and someone knows God? He answers it by saying, if we are loving one another. If we're loving one another, then we know that we are born of God and know God. But if we're not loving one another, then we're not born of God, we don't know God. Right? What has to be first there? We have to be born of God to love one another. Then to confirm that this love has to come from God, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If God first loves us by changing our heart, then he gives us a heart of love to love one another. And if God first loved us by changing our heart, that's what the Bible says, born of God. We are born of God. It just seems to me that when the Holy Spirit begins that work, that effectual work of regeneration, why would it be unreasonable to assume that faith is imparted at that very moment when life is granted? Right. Simultaneous. Well, simultaneous same moment. Well, at the same, let, let's say at the same time, not separated by no, not, days, no, no. But, but it has to be in terms of the actual work of God, it has to be sequential. It is imparted along with the rebirth, but the rebirth has to produce the faith. The, the faith cannot produce the rebirth. Yeah. No, no, the, the, the faith is evidence of the rebirth. Yeah, I, I, faith is evidence of the rebirth. Yeah, of course, I'm not insinuating at all that faith causes the rebirth. Uh, rebirth, regeneration. Um, I, I don't want to make that 
this sound difficult, but just when light is imparted, when the, when the power of the Spirit is imparted, faith becomes evident. Faith is there. Faith and repentance or grace is granted upon that energy of the Spirit being effectually wrought in the heart and soul. Um, yes. And which is evidence from that point on by a life of uh, righteous works for the glory of God. Yes. But I wasn't talking in terms of, you know, well, later on, you know, regenerate now and later on there's conversion. <laughs> I'm just saying, why is it unreasonable to say that regeneration and conversion happen at the same moment? Because that's when repentance and grace and uh, faith are. Well, the reason that someone would want to say same moment is to avoid the doctrine of the Spirit of God regenerating the heart by the election of God the Father through the Son. They want to avoid the, that regeneration depends on the purpose of God, the elective purpose of God. They don't like that doctrine, and so they try to find a way that this regeneration or faith is not the sequence of regeneration causing faith. They want to get away from that. That's what is in their motivation. That would be the Armenian. That would be Arminianism, yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, there was one follow-up back there on this same question, Caleb, and then over here in the front. Well, I mean, you, you answered that. I was just going to say, maybe the difference is just looking at it chronologically versus logically. Like, in the time, yeah, you could maybe say the same one, but logically they're not interchangeable. You can't put faith before regeneration because someone cannot respond in faith if they're dead in their sins. A dead person does not respond. So it has to be regeneration first, logically speaking, regardless of what happens in yes. the moment in time. Yes. In, in time. And all of that is even, even so, all that is evidence of God's election, which is an eternity anyway. Yes. So it has to be logically the case, um, and I would say chronologically also, to the extent that regeneration produces faith. Right. And it does so immediately. Right. Regeneration right. immediately. But, but when they say at the same time, simultaneous, at the same moment, what they want to do is get away from regeneration causing faith. Yeah. Yeah. They want to get away from That's why they use those terms. Regenerated, you can't have faith. Yeah. Correct. You've got to be regenerated before you can have that faith. Yes. That's what they don't want to admit. Because if it depends on regeneration producing faith, then it means that God chooses some people for salvation and rejects others. Isn't it also unreasonable to say, because you mentioned, is it unreasonable to say they're simultaneous? Because all the scriptures you pointed out say they're not simultaneous. Birth, then faith. Birth, you know, born of God, then faith. So to say it's unreasonable because it's a rejection of scripture. Okay, yes. So then we can't use that terminology or blur the distinction because the scripture does not blur the distinction. It actually proves that the rebirth causes faith. Right. That's good. Yeah. Okay. And then over here? It had, logically, it has to be, it can't be simul at the time of their uh, 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 election because the three persons of the Trinity each have a part to play in it. Uh, G, uh, 
that Jesus had to come and die at, at the time, and then the Holy Spirit has to communicate to each person uh, that salvation, the truth of that uh, gift of salvation that, uh, that they, uh, and regener the regeneration of, of each person. Yes, but the, the other brother, he was meaning in the individual human heart, does that work happen simultaneously? Does it happen at one moment so that we cannot make a distinction between faith and regeneration? That was his question or comment, and that's why I addressed it the way I did, that we have to, because the Bible says one precedes the other or one produces the other, um, or the faith is a result of the regenerate heart. Since the Bible teaches that, we have to hold to that sequence. Yeah. Whether we call it logical or chronological, we, ha we have to understand that one causes the other, which is the doctrine that everybody, ev everybody, yeah. generally speaking within Christian denominations, everybody hates that. And they hate it because they refuse to believe that God would choose some for salvation and reject all the rest. Because they have a false con conception of God as though he has equal love towards every person in spiritual matters. They think he has equal love towards every person in spiritual matters. When that's not true. That's, it's that's not true. Okay, this brother saying it's an American idea. Actually, it's also an Indian idea because I see it all over India. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, it is an American idea, but it's, I think it's worldwide. People just don't like to think that God does not love every person equally in spiritual matters. They refuse. God may not love me in my sin. What's that? Is that God may not love me in my sin. Then he might not, not, might not love me in my sin. Okay. Well, if he hated Esau, the Edomites, then obviously there's going to be some that he hates. Yes, yes. Okay, so we saw the example of Esau and the Edomites as an example of some people that he hates. Indeed. But they have their way of explaining those things away. They say hate doesn't mean hate. It means he just didn't give them certain things. And then the destruction of the Edomites or Esau had to do only with physical destruction, not eternal destruction. That's how they escape Esau. But we saw from Malachi 1, a wicked territory toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And then it's brought up again in Romans 9, and he's talking about eternal salvation in Romans 9. So it can't be just temporal punishments. He's talking about eternal punishments in Malachi and in Romans 9. Yeah. So the word hate doesn't mean love less, like some Armenian commentators would have. No, no, the word hate does not mean love less, as some Armenian commentators would have us to believe. For example, even in Malachi, if it means love less, then how else is God going to explain hate um, besides the way he just did? He said, uh, I'm going to wipe you out as a nation. I'm going to obliterate you. So loving somebody less is not manifested that way. It's illustrated, the hatred is illustrated that way, but loving less is not illustrated that way. He's wiping them out as a nation. And then loving less is not stated by saying, the wicked territory toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. 
That's not loving less. That's hating. That's hating them. And many, many more examples in Scripture are like that. Okay, one more, and then our time's up. Oh, good. Since faith is produced by the, by the regeneration of the heart, how is it true that we must believe on Jesus Christ to be saved? Since it's true that regeneration produces faith, and we can't do that unless we are regenerated, then why does the Bible command something that we are unable to do? That is, believe, or repent, or obey, or anything else the Bible tells us, right? The answer is simple. When God issues that command, He does not assume everyone can obey that command. God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, and He's also given the Ten Commandments to us. He has given the 613 commandments to Israel. We don't have 613, but they had it. They could not keep all 613, and they knew it, and they could not keep all 10, and they knew it. We cannot keep all 10, and we know it, but yet we are obligated to keep them. So the assumption that they have, Arminianism has this assumption, false assumption, that if God tells us to do something, well, then, of course, we have the ability to do it. That's a false assumption. But why then does God issue commands? Because that is the means to bring to our awareness our need. And then when God makes us aware by his, the word of Christ, he sends the spirit of Christ to convince the hearer that that is true. And that's the work of the Spirit beginning to make the person understand and regenerate his heart so that he wants to believe in what he's hearing. So it is the means that God uses to convert people. That's in order for the conversion of some. The issuing of a command brings it to our awareness, brings our need to our awareness, and then God uses that for the elect to convert them. The Spirit of Christ uses the Word of Christ to produce a child of God. Okay? It's His means. It's His vehicle of conversion. But also, if the vast majority of people who hear the Word reject that Word, that's also according to God's purpose. It's also according to God's purpose. And why? To be an aroma of death Look at 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17. But thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul rejoices, he thanks God that he can be used in this way to be a fragrance to one group of, for a fragrance of life and to another one a fragrance of death. 
So he's got the privilege of bringing about life in some and death in others. So they will be judged more severely for rejecting that gospel. It's not an accident. There's no afterthought. There's no plan B with God like this. All of this is on purpose. So it's not a... uh... It's not a uh, work of the flesh to leave. It's a not. You have to do this or you're not going to be saved. No, no. It's not a work of the flesh. It's not a work of the flesh because it's impossible. Remember earlier we we read from Joshua 24, uh, 14 and 15, and he says, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Well, most commentators, most interpreters, when they read that, they say, Well, there, the Bible says you can choose. Well, yes, we're supposed to choose, but the real issue is who's going to make that choosing uh, a possibility? Who's going to make it possible for us to choose correctly? Because after Joshua said that in 24, 14, and 15, the people say, yes, 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 we're going to follow the Lord, right? And then what does Joshua tell them after they say, yes, we're going to follow the Lord? He says in 24, 19, Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord. You will not be able. So he told them they must choose. They say, yes, we're going to choose. But then Joshua retorts and says, No, you're not going to be able to choose. You're misunderstanding what I'm saying. You're not able. And until God makes them able, they're not going to choose him. All right. Thank you, everyone.